Yeah, I just want to uh, um, just to, to quickly um, introduce Baruch Baruch Maoz, and I finally just just uh, finally just learned how to proper, properly pronounce his, his name. I think I hope I got close anyway. Um, but uh, I mentioned to the, to the, the group yesterday that uh, when when I first after after talking with his wife Bracha. Um, and uh, about about him, about their life, and about their their beliefs and values and whatnot. I was just so really um, encouraged by the way that as as Christians they were looking to the Word of God to understand the 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 the, the life that God would have them live, and 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 it was ways that that are really countercultural, even in a Christian way. Now, we're all of us. If you're a Christian, you're looking to the Word of God um, in order to uh, in order to to be guided in, in, in how he would want you to live your life. But the reality is, it's like you don't need to teach a, 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 tell a, teach a fish what it means to be wet, because the fish is just wet. So we're immersed in the culture, we don't know that, but, but where our brother is, is living his life and leading his family in, in a way that's dictated by the word of God, and even at times it's, it's contrary to, to Christian culture. Uh, much of the Christian culture in, 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 his, in his homeland it just really spoke to me and said, I, w- I want to, to, to get to know this, this man and, and, and really learn, learn from him and, and, um, and, and be, be sharpened by him. And so, um, so uh, this really is a, a, a perfect series for him to be, to be preaching about, that the duties are imposed on us by the gospel because people are naturally either antinomian, they, they reject all of law and, and, and duty, or the other ditch is, I'm not going to start. I'm almost. I'm not going to preach. Um, the other, the other is is um, legalism, where you're trying to earn favor with God through works. And we got to be careful not to fall in those ditches. And I, and I think our, our brother really is 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 exemplary by God's grace and seeking to do that. I um, also want to to um, um, to put in a plug. So coming up this fall in our men's and women's Bible studies, we're going to be um, we're going to be studying. Um, Baruch, Baruch's commentary on uh, Galatians, which really identifies and deals with a lot of these issues, um, with the, the Judaizers said you had to submit to all of the the Old Testament uh, ceremonial law and the law and, and doing works in order to be saved and, and to become really a Jew to be saved, and so it really is, is I think our brothers uniquely situated to be able to to help us with that. So looking forward to that. We've already purchased the books, and so we'll talk to you more as the, as the time approaches. But, um, but brother, delighted to have you come and to minister God's word to us this morning. Thank you. Good morning to you all. To be honest, I'm, uh, I'm faced with a problem. And uh, the choice of hymns on the one hand confirmed my choice of the topic, and then uh, Pastor John, uh, John faced me with the fact that I'm supposed to be dealing with a different matter. So I think I'm going to follow the hymns. We've been talking about uh, the duties that the gospel imposes. What I would like to do with you this morning is think about the gospel. What, in fact, is the gospel? And what I would like to do, if you would agree, 
is to take a rather common verse, attach a less common verse to it, the one that follows, and try to, by God's grace, delve into John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. In order to do that, we need God's assistance, and so I'd ask you to join with me in prayer. You are the light of the world, O God, and we ask that you might enlighten our hearts and do so through enlightening our minds. Teach us, Lord, to know you. Teach us to see your gospel, to understand it, and grant us the grace to be so impacted by it that we will indeed live to the praise and to the glory of your name. We ask in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, the verse, of course, at least verse 16, is very familiar. 17 sheds lights on it, as I hope you will see. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now this text speaks of three. It speaks of God, it speaks of God's Son, and it speaks of the world. Let's think of these three, beginning, of course, with God. God is the gloriously all-sufficient, self-sufficient one. He is eternal. He is the one who is in need of none other, and yet not out of need, but loves all. This is not a God who created the world out of any kind of necessity, because God is not dependent on anything or anyone but himself. Nothing can be added to him. Nothing can be taken from him. He is what he was and what he ever shall be, eternal, perfect, beautiful, terrible in his majesty. His happiness is uncontingent. It's not dependent upon anything. It's not derived from anything but himself. His strength Likewise, derives from no source but himself. Everything that has to do with him has to do with his glorious essence. Everything he knows, he knows because he determined. Everything that he wills, he wills because he chooses so to will. And so that the greatest of nations know, all of the nations putting together, put together are but a drop in a bucket. And actually, the Hebrew term doesn't even talk about a drop. It talks about that little skim of water that remains after you think you've emptied the bucket altogether. All mankind to him is less than a grain of sand in the seashore. Who can compare with this uh, uh, amazingly glorious God? This is a God that Scripture repeatedly tells us is 
holy beyond description. And often when scripture cannot explain something, it gives us a sense of it. And so what I would like to do is share with you one biblical description of the appearance of God so that we will have something of the sense of his awesome holiness. I'm referring to the first chapter of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel says, I shall not be reading the whole of the chapter. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. And the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man. But each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight. Their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead, and they did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side, and two wings covering his body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. Spread out above the hands of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse sparkling like ice and awesome. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. There came a voice from above the expanse over the heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of sapphire, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist upward, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And from that there down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow and the clouds on a ro rainy day, so was the radiance round about him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. One cannot describe the holiness of God. One can only, to a very limited measure, have a sense of its awesomeness. God is pure. So pure that nothing can be compared to him. Uh, the angels themselves cringe before his holiness, shielding their faces, lest they look upon that awful 
glory. Earth shakes at his appearance and the heavens darkened and nature responds with fear and wonder. Think of the time when he gave his holy law to Israel. There was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet voice. Everyone in the camp trembled. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will all die. This is not a God to be trifled with. He is a consuming fire, a furiously jealous God who brooks no competition of any kind from any source. He is a God who demands our all without reserve and without compromise or negotiation. He has a right to our all. He created hell and he stokes its fire with his righteous anger and he will cast the unbelieving and the morally defiled and all the cowardly sinful into a lake of fire inextinguishable, insatiable holiness will never be exhausted. This is the God of whom John speaks. This is the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The word so there means not to such an extent, so much as in such a manner. He loved the world in such a manner that he gave his only begotten son. So much of the son lets, of the father, let's think for a moment about the son. The son is equal to the father in, in everything. There's not a single iota of deity enjoyed by the Father, which is not also the Son's joyful possession. Like the Father, he is from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God from the beginning. And like the Father, he has life in himself. Again, like the Father, life comes from him. Through him all things were made. Apart from him, nothing made was made. This is the Son. All the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge are to be found in him so that nothing can be understood appropriately unless considered in relationship to him, to the Son. He sustains the universe by his powerful word. And like the Father, all that exists, all that ever did or ever will exist, came from him and exists for him. He is the reason for all things. Like the Father, he is also 
holy. So that sinners shrink before his all-seeing eye, and even in his humanity, no one can condemn him of sin. And yet when John saw him in his glory, he tells us very much in the terms that we read from Ezekiel, he saw someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His hair and his head were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Later on in this same book, John describes him yet again as the Lord of life and of death, of heaven and of hell, of the angels and of devils and of all men, who with justice judges and makes war. His eyes are like a blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And now... He sits at the right hand of the Father, sharing his reign and his glory, with which with glory he will return with the myriads of angels to be glorified in his saints. This, this son is the Father's only begotten son. Others are son by divine creation or by divine adoption. But Jesus is not included in that order of things. He holds in relationship to creation a position of primacy that none can share. He is God's only begotten by virtue of his eternal deity. John describes him, therefore, as the only begotten, using a term that uh, the very strangest of which draws attention to the fact that God values his son, views him as deeply pressured. He is not adopted. He was not deified. He did not obtain some kind of special infusion of the Spirit by virtue of which he became the Son of God. He is by very nature of God. This word, eternally divine in being in the presence of the Father, is the Father's eternal delight. Actually, when John uses this term, only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he uses a term of endearment. But regretfully, for example, the translators of the NIV have uh, uh, chosen to modify so that it really 
empties the term out of its content. To be in one's bosom is to be an object of particular affection, of particular love. When, when Moses wants to describe the love and care that God committed to him in relation to the people of Israel, he says, Lord, you commanded me to carry them in my bosom. When Nathan describes the, uh, in his famous parable, the affection which uh, this man had in the parable to his you, to his young sheep, he says that he was always in the man's bosom. When Proverbs describes wisdom in the presence of God, he says that he was always God's daily delight, rejoicing always in his presence. The father loves the son, and the son loves the father. And so it will be to a thousand generations and beyond, without fluctuation, without the slightest shadow of change. The father is well pleased in his son, as should we be. And this is the son whom the father gave. Hard to believe, is it not? Let me make it harder for you. Think with me about the world. The world here is described as the object of God's love. In, in Scripture, the word world has a, a, a broad spectrum of meanings. It sometimes talks about uh, material creation. Sometimes it's, it's meant to speak about just uh, a, a way of living, uh, the way of thinking, a, a manner of life. But John uses the word particularly in one special way. He tells us that the world is that which is synonymous with mankind in opposition to God. It's a, a world that declined to acknowledge the Son when he came into the world. It's a world that hates both Jesus and his disciples. It is a world that is ruled by Satan and judged by God. It cannot receive the Spirit because it does not know nor acknowledge Jesus. It is juxtaposed with those who do believe in him, with those who, whose moral qualities come from a work of God's grace in their hearts and their lives. Christians are not to love the world, for such a love is a contradiction of love for God. The world is given over to lust, and it will not endure. It rests in wickedness, and it will be overcome by those who believe. In other words, the world is mankind governed by Satan and in opposition to God. And this is the world that God loved in such a manner, in such an amazing way, that he gave his son for it. Let's think a little more about this world. This world is sinful, riddled with lust and ambition and 
arrogance and selfishness. This is a world that gives not a thought to God or to his honor, nor a whisper to loving and serving him as it ought. This is a world in which the laws of God are not only not kept, but transgressed with determination, where man lives for himself. This is a world where kindness and humility and honesty and purity and justice are seldom sought, seldom cultivated. Instead, men and women vie with each other without reserve in order to achieve their purposes. My body, my choice. It's not your body. It's God's. And there's another body you are carrying. He too, it too, she too. We all belong to God. Every fiber of our being is his. The natural uses of life in this world are consciously transformed into a means of satisfaction of animal desires so that the term making love has lost its meaning and has taken on a disgusting meaning. Children are sacrificed to the moloch of human ambition and human comfort. I don't want to have this baby. So what if you don't want to have this baby? Do you let your children do all that they want to do? Do you believe you have a right to do all that you want to do? And those who dare speak faithfully the name of God to their societies are hounded and nowadays their abortion clinics are attacked, graffitied, Molotov bottle attacks perpetuated against them. They're heckled and made into laughing stocks or thrown into prison in some places. It's not that mankind does not know the truth. It's inscribed, that truth, on the heart of every human being. But this world is in rebellion against God. Determined, conscious rebellion against God. Man refuses to honor God, refuses to obey him, refuses to submit to his holy requirements. It flaunts its purported independence, its autonomy, and insists upon the right to live as it pleases. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am God. I sit on the throne of God in the midst of the seas. But you are a man and not God. Though you think you are as wise as God. Are you wiser than Daniel? Is no secret hidden from you? By your wisdom and understanding, you've gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasures. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth. And because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. What does that kind of a rebellion deserve? God says that he will see that the proud are brought down low, down to the pit, that they will die a violent death in the heart of the seas. Will you then say, I am God? In the presence of those who kill you, you will be but a man and not a God in the hands of those who slay you. 
God has a way of crushing the rebellious. This world is therefore unworthy, certainly unworthy of divine favor. Once again, turning to the word of God, will you steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name and say we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Go to Shiloh, where I first made a dwelling in my name, and see what I did for the wickedness of my people. Go to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and see what God did to his own people for their sin. Follow the history of my people over the last 2,000 years and then dare question the horror of the wrath of God. No, this sinful, rebellious, wicked world is justly liable to only one thing, punishment. Shall I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a people as this? And this is the world that God loved in such a manner that he gave his son, his only begotten son, not to condemn the world, and that's the surprise of it all, but that the world through him might be saved. And God's love is, is not an altruistic love. It's not the product of any kind of uh, prospective gain which he expects, uh, expects to achieve. We've already seen that God has no need. Uh, our love is so so paltry, so besmirched with sin, so, so irrelevant to God, that it is only by grace that he will accept any expression of our love. He has no need of it. Nor is his love the fruit of any kind of obligation. God is not an obligation to any man or to any nation or to the whole of mankind. All the more so following mankind's sin and rebellion. But you see, love is best expressed in what it gives. And if, if I was expected to speak on what we should do, here it is. Love is best expressed in what it gives, in what it bears, in, in what it is willing to forgive. And God so loved that he gave. And gave more liberally than man could ever imagine in his wildest dream. He also bore more and forgives more than heaven's angels could think possible. God is patient. God is kind. And although he rightly demands of his creatures that we honor him, he does not envy us our joys or our happiness.
God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But have you ever thought of this word gave? What was involved in this? You know, we often, when we quote John 3.16, we think of the sacrifice of Christ, but that is not what the passage is speaking of. It's speaking of the sacrifice that the Father made, not the Son. It is the Father who gave his Son. His only begotten. Handing over his Son to become an object of God's hatred of God's anger, of everything that is disgusting in the eyes of God, to the suffering and to death because of that. It meant making him beloved of the Father, who always did his Father's will most perfectly, and in whom the Father had such delight to become sin for us, to bear the curse that sin deserves. Will we ever fathom what I just said? I wonder. It will take eternity and then some. The Father gave the Son. The Son, ever in the Father's bosom, cherished, loved, and adored before the world began. Became the very embodiment of sin and rebellion, everything for which God created hell and its enduring fire. And all of a sudden, the son becomes repulsive to his father, and the father turns his back to him and forsakes him in holy horror. No wonder heaven darkened. No wonder earth shook. No wonder the very dead rose from their graves. Can we, can we ever even begin to imagine such love, dear sisters and brothers? The father killed his son to save a sinner. The father turned his back to him whom he loved so dearly in order to turn his face towards those who rebelled against him. The Father emptied heaven of its choicest joy, only that he might inhabit it with miserable sinners, saved by grace through the shed blood of this beloved Son. Is this not the kind of love that strikes us dumb? When we think of it, and we think that we have become objects of it. Such is God's love. This is the manner of God's love. And the ground and the logic of the gospel, the driving force of all we do in, in, in our lives, has to do with this. The indescribably amazing love of God. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast. Beyond all measure. 
that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold, the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice called, call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Let's pray. What can we really say to you, O God, our Father? Our hearts are so pathetically cold. Although so amazed with the glorious wonder of your love. Grant us, O oh Lord, grant us, please, by your mercy, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, with all our being, with all our resources, at every opportunity, in every walk of life. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.